This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm Benjamin Linder. On today's episode, we're pleased to bring you a conversation about poetic traditions in East Africa. Earlier this year, Brill published In This Fragile World, Swahili Poetry of Commitment by Ustad Mahmoud Mao. Ustad Mao is a spiritual leader and popular poet from Lamu, Kenya. When he visited the Netherlands earlier this year, a local bookshop here in Leiden hosted a reading to launch this new collection of English translations of his poems, and we will be playing some recordings from that event to give listeners a sense of the poems in their original Swahili. To guide us through the poetry and to introduce their broader context, I'm happy to be joined by Clarissa Firka and Ana Chiara Raya, who served as editors and translators of In This Fragile World. Clarissa Firka is Professor of Literatures and African Languages at the University of Bayreuth. Her PhD examined the specific poetics of a narrative poetic genre from the Swahili coast in Eastern Africa. Since then, she's worked on manuscript cultures in Eastern Africa and traveling texts along the East African coast from Kenya to Mozambique and across the Indian Ocean. Anakiara Raya is a university lecturer at the Leiden University Center for the Arts and Society. She specializes in African languages and literatures, and her research focuses on the role of texts and performative practices in forging Swahili Islamic networks across Muslim lands of the Indian Ocean and the African continent. I'm happy they could make time to join me, and I'm pleased to present our conversation about poetry in East Africa, and specifically the poetry of Ustad Mahmoud Mao. Clarissa and Ana Chiara, thank you so much for joining me on the channel to talk about your new work of translation and the poetry of Ustad Mahmoud Mao. I'm really happy to be speaking with both of you today. I want to start with your backgrounds and how you both got interested in East Africa and the Indian Ocean world. Can you tell us about how you came to this field of study and specifically that region's poetry and literature? Clarissa, maybe we start with you. Yes, um, that's, I think, um, a difficult and an easy question in a way. Um, I studied African languages and, and literatures and anthropology. And one of the major questions, every, um, one of the major languages, sorry, everybody had to learn was um, Swahili. And, um, and then I had the opportunity actually to, to get a scholarship. And at that time, I didn't know anything about or not much actually <laughs> about East Africa. And, and I went to East Africa for the first time in the, um, in the year 2000 and um, with a scholarship trying to improve my language skills. And I was completely fascinated by, at that time, um, the Swahili coast that, is, that was the Tanzanian, the Tanzanian coast, the Swahili-speaking Tanzanian coast. And, um, and, and at the same time, I was also taking uh, lectures and seminars on, on Swahili poetry and particularly the old poetry from the coast, which goes back to the 18th century. That's something that fascinated me because it was so rich, so little studied and so much to do. And that's how I started, so to say, working on Swahili poetry. 
And um, then, I mean, when you work on Swahili poetry, then automatically you realize there's lots of cultural influence coming from the Indian Ocean, from the Arabic Peninsula, um, Indian influence as well. You see it in the language, you see it in the culture, you see it in the literature. And that's, so to say, automatically kind of, if you work particularly on pre-colonial poetry, um, that automatically kind of um, forces you, invites you to look at Indian Ocean connections. And that's something that I have been kind of developing further in the last years. So at the moment, I'm having an, a project on actual Indian Ocean connections together with um, colleagues in comparative literature and particularly Lusophone and Francophone literature looking at literary connections across the ocean. Anna Chiara, how did you come to this? I have always been fascinated by the African continent, um, its culture and the people. Um, but uh, of course, I, I mean, I, I had no clue how to access it somehow to begin with. Um, I was also fascinated by language since I was um, yeah, in secondary school. And that's how I started being exposed to foreigner languages, so to speak. Um, I had the feeling starting working on literary text back then that um, yeah, working on um, yeah, other language literary text opens new words and new perspectives on words. However, the study only on Western languages such as uh, English, French, Spanish, uh, Latin as well was not enough to me at some point. So that's when I decided at university to pick from the famous uh, humanities program on Oriental language and cultures, uh, the study of Arabic, um, classical Arabic and Swahili, uh, their language and related histories, literature and cultures. And yeah, I still remember uh, that um, in the Swahili grammar book that uh, was compiled and edited by um, Professor Elena Zupnova Bertoncini, um, that Professor Bertoncini would have always combined grammatical descriptions of Swahili with extracts uh, taken from short stories in Swahili called Adifti, or poetry, Mashairi, or novels, Riwaya, or plays in Chez or Tamtilia. So in that way, it was a great discovery uh, to, to be exposed to such a variety of Swahili genres that were completely unknown to me before going to the university, basically. And I also remember uh, the first discoveries of Swahili terms deriving from Arabic while studying Swahili, but also from Portuguese or Persian, Hindi and German. So while reading Swahili text, I would have spotted, for instance, uh, yeah, uh, even Swahili words and um, enjoying trying to write them down in other scripts, such as Arabic. I'm thinking of words like kitabu, kalamu, or uh, verbs like uh, to forgive, kusame. Yeah, the, the very first words I learned via Swahili literary text. And then only later on uh, for my PhD, that was 2012, I, I stepped into, <laughs> into the new world by living it through experience um, when I traveled to, to Kenya, to, to Lamu for my first time. Yeah. That's the beginning. <laughs> That's great. Thank you both. How commonplace is the writing and recitation of poetry in East Africa and perhaps on Lamu generally or more specifically? Can you introduce the poetic traditions broadly of the region for people like me who aren't very familiar with it? Well, uh, the composition and recitation of poetry is uh, quintessential in East Africa, I'd say. 
poetry was a mainstay in the manuscript area as well as in the print area um, up to nowadays via digital outlets and social platforms where poetry is um, recorded and disseminated. More and less talent poets take part up to nowadays into competitions during cultural festivals. Uh, they compose and commission on a regular basis for someone else, uh, like for instance, an occasion of a funeral or a graduation ceremony or a wedding. Composi composing poetry is a gift and uh, it's often inherited by one's own family. Uh, but also receiving a poem is, can be considered, is regarded as a gift actually. Now, the specific prosodic structure um, through rhyme, syllables, and um, for, um, through the rhyme, the rhyme and syllable system, for instance, that facilitates uh, very often also the memorization of the, of the poem by heart. And uh, until nowadays, people are capable to recall, of recalling old poems dating back to the 18th century by heart. Other people may still carry with them pocket versions of these poems and read them aloud in the mosque during Maulidi or other seasonal celebrations like the Miraji or also in private households. During the Umada digitization training workshop that was held on Lamuford Library on the island last October, um, the poet, imam and thinker, San Mahmoud Pao himself said, Tungo bila sahuti haina uhai aisomeki. That translates indeed a text without voice is not alive, is not read. And uh, yeah, this reflection really uh, sheds light on the importance of the oral component in Swahili literature. Um, uh, yeah, the literary text, the short mashairi, for instance, with so many intricate um, and difficult metaphors and riddles that must be solved. Um, as well as the long narrative poems, they are not only known by heart uh, and, and read aloud in these days, um, but they are also recorded and broadcasted, broadcast with or without musical accompaniment, actually. You mentioned that there's this tradition of reciting poetry and memorization as well. And I was struck earlier this summer in May, we I attended a book launch event that you had with the poet Ustad Mahmoud Mao at Index Books here in Leiden. And we're going to be playing a few clips from that reading so that we can get the full effect of his voice reading the poems. But one thing that I remember from that event is that you asked him to read something, literally read it, and you handed him the book and he just began reciting from the top of his mind. So clearly this is something that exactly. is deeply ingrained and something that is, um, it, it is a longstanding tradition, something that he was very well versed in doing. Yeah. That's Which brings us nicely to, to the new book. Um, earlier this year, Brill published In This Fragile World, Swahili Poetry of Commitment by Ustad Mahmoud Mao, for which you both served as translators and editors. Before we get into the poetry itself, again, we're going to play some clips here moving forward from that index books reading. What can you tell us about the poet himself and how did you come across him and come to meet him? Clarissa, maybe you can start. Yes, sure. <laughs> With lots of pleasure. Um, we are very happy that this book is is out um, because it's, it's very dear and special um, to us and also to the community on Namu where also Ustan Mao is held in very high esteem. So he is, um, on the one hand, 
the imam of one of the oldest mosques there. That means he preaches regularly the Friday sermon in the mosque, but he also teaches the madrasa, so in the Quranic school, both um, boys and girls or also adults sometimes. And he is a very respected figure in the sense that people also come to his place actually to, to ask for all kinds of advice about marriage problems, financial issues, well, all kind of social issues you can possibly think of. And the other thing he's very famous for is, is um, being a poet who kind of uses his poetry as well to speak out against all kinds of social ills and to educate. That's, that's very important to him. Although, of course, there's also other poetry that he composes, uh, for instance, on the occasion of weddings as well, as well as more personal. One could probably even say some kind of diary poetry in which he reflects about his own kind of situation or, or um, events occurring in the family. Um, so it's quite, quite diverse. And he also uses a, a wide range of media. So he kind of speaks on the radio every, every week, sometimes twice, with his own radio, radio program. His poetry is sold on CDs, then now I think also flash disks, and, and is also distributed on sometimes through social, uh, social media as well. So that's what, what he is very well known for. I got to know Ustad Mahmoud Mao exactly um, when he recited a poem for the opening of a conference, which is usually done. All major occasions are linked to a poem and no, no major thing starts without a poem. And there was a conference on popular culture in Mombasa, and that was in 2006, so a while ago. And then I, um, and I was actually um, talking about another poet, a 19th century poet, and he was interested about, so to say, my research invited me to his place and said, can you tell me more? Which I think is kind of shows you a bit, gives you an idea about his own curiosity of learning more and more. So I was invited, that was the first time I entered into his library, which, where also this wide range of interests is very well reflected. Started very early on to commission, I mean, to actually order books from all over the Arab world. So you see lots of, so to say, Arabic titles in his library, but you also find um, developmental psychology is very interested in how to educate, how to bring up children. Um, you, you see the Swahili dictionaries, novels of all kinds, um, English literature. So it's, it's, you see, so to say, the broad interest um, he has. And so I got to know him better and seeing also what a, what a great poet he, he is. And um, then later, so five years later, um, I guess, I, I had a grant. And my first idea was like, OK, now, finally, I think I can invite him to come to Germany and we'll, we'll probably... Um, have the chance to put a book together. And so you see also, <laughs> it was a long process. And I, I went myself to ask him personally if, if he would agree, because, um, because of course there are also other means of his poetry has been publicized and so on. And he was very happy actually that there was a chance for him to also get his poetry known elsewhere. And so, well, and we didn't kind of have the kind of the time, both Anna Chiara, I was very happy that she joined in then um, at a later stage as well. I mean, not, not, I mean, right from the beginning of the project, but um, later in the sense, like after me thinking, well, one could publish his poetry and him agreeing. And then we couldn't fully concentrate on it because there were too many other things happening and too many other projects. And so this is why we worked with him on his poetry on several occasions, like us going to Eastern Africa individually together, him coming um, to Germany and recently as well to Leiden, 
and um, and this has been a really great kind of conversation and um, I think well friendship I guess as well that has developed he's very dear I think to to both of us and um, and of course through his poetry working on his poetry one also gets to know him better and his own um, his own kind of writing yeah that friendship you fostered with him definitely showed through with that index books reading you you guys seemed very um very amicable together and like you it really was a, a nice partnership that you three have established Anakiara did you want to add anything to that or yeah sure I think it just uh, indeed uh, it was impressive when we started to collect his poetry uh, after indeed the wish to publish his anthology to to discover how much he had produced how proli what a prolific author from from Lamo uh, we had the, the the blessing to 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 meet actually because back then uh, I think uh, the inventory list counted roughly 100 works um, among which a few from his beloved father so very uh, old um, manuscripts and nowadays that we are currently uh, digitizing the whole collection made um, from his side uh, while the collection is made of almost 400 poems so yeah I mean it's um, of course he's known for the, 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 the for those poems that have uh, traveled farther and wider like Wasia Wamapanati, Kiswahili, Mama Musillahumo but also Kimondo Mualimo but uh, I mean, his ever is so amazing, and this also shows that there's so much still that must be done and translated, and also being shared with other um, uh, readers and people. <laughs> I want to give listeners now a sense of the sound of these poems. So we're going to play a clip from that index books reading that happened on May 23rd earlier this year. Um, this poem is called Hapo Zamani Zayana, which you translate as Once Upon a Time. And this is actually not a poem by Ustad Mao himself, but rather by his father shortly before the birth of Mao. So uh, shortly before his birth, about that birth. This is an example, you say, of the wasia genre in your introduction to this poem in the book. Can you introduce that genre and maybe just set up this recording before we play it? What do listeners need to know before we hear um, Ustad Mao reading this poem? Well, Wasia genre is a long-standing uh, tradition um, that dates back to indeed uh, 18th century Swahili poetry, but um, has also strong connections with um, Arabic Wasia genre that even dates back earlier on. Um, Wasia is a way to guide your. Um, it's a spiritual piece of advice. Uh, let's put in these terms that uh, is given to to somebody who is dear, uh, who is close to you, whom you care about, and and it's a recurring genre that uh, we encounter in several compositions of Ustad Mao. Not only Hapozamani Zadiana, but also, uh, indeed, as the title already um, lends itself to think of Wasiawama Banati, but also Haki Zawatodo. So it's a piece of spiritual advice that uh, the author, the poet, delivers to his son, his daughter. Uh, in this case, Haposamanizadiana is indeed his beloved father, who composed this poem for his um, firstborn um, son, uh, Mahmoud uh, Ahmed Abdul Kader, known by us as Mahmoud Mao. And uh, yeah, together with Amo, that is also part of the anthology Hapo Zamani Zadiana, um, that opens actually the, the anthology, translates as Once Upon a Time, 
is indeed one of the oldest existing poems in this collection, in his private collection, um, which he still keeps very jealously a copy of uh, that was uh, copied down by his son um, as he wanted so much to keep a copy of the original that unfortunately got lost. It's also a very particular and and uh, and and fragile document um, that shows early. I mean, that shows uh, examples of of writing Swahili in Arabic script, and at least so much connected to you know, Swahili um, poetry practice that we referred to earlier on. Um, yeah, and suddenly his father uh, passed away when he was only f- um, fifty five years old. Uh, he was a marine engineer. And yeah, the, 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 the death of his father inevitably um, yeah, uh, represented um, a substantial change in his life. Uh, in the 70s, uh, he was working in Dar es Salaam and had to go back home and take care of his family, of his um, uh, siblings, um, as also is somehow written between the lines of the poem uh, among the several advices advice that um, uh, his father gives to him, uh, one is indeed exactly to look after his family, even he's busy at work, and to look after his siblings. Um, He also provides advice about uh, how to take care of uh, one's own wife, for instance. Uh, Don't don't show her your entire wealth, otherwise it will be taken away by her, or buy for her beautiful and expensive necklaces, for instance. Uh, but also, and more importantly, we have a beautiful line uh, where the father urges his son to treat the privilege and uh, downtrodden equally. Um, it's a lasting heritage, we could consider these. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, Probably just, just to add one thing, um, the poem, uh, Mahmoud Ma was born in 1952, and the poem was written on the occasion of his birth because he was the firstborn. So it's a poem from the 1950s. That means um, Kenya was still under colonial rule. And I think that's that makes the poem also really interesting um, because there's also an emphasis on getting educated and not leaving um, Islam behind. I think that the father emphasizes a lot, which one can see in this context of well of colonial imposition of colonial education and particularly the schooling system at the time that his father was very suspicious of so he got his whole education at the madrasa um, ustad mao and that's also what he emphasizes in the poem not to leave the islamic tradition uh, behind that makes it a particularly interesting document as well yeah Thank you. Now let's listen to that recording from Index Books on May 23rd. And this is actually just excerpts because the poem's much longer than this. But after we listen to him read it in the original Swahili, I'll ask you both for your translation, your rendering into English. This is a poem which my father composed for me. It's telling like this. Hapo zamani zayana, nalopokuwa kijana, hata ndrevu siyavona haya naliasikia. Mutu akipinya fali, malibu yake unali, tumeona na dalili nyingi na kushugudia. Baba ingawa ni muanga, kijana chake utunga, ulayango la muanga upenda kumusia. Asili yake iwani, 
nalikuweko dukani mimi na wangu wendani hadithi nikasikia alinena bahsani kiswa cha nasurudini moyo wangu katamani na hilo kutumia akajirisha azizi mtukufu wa uyuzi isitimu hata mwezi kabuli katimia nikamuona mako akapata mimba yako akuandika ina lako na surudini sikia litimize lake ina lake na zote zitano zake yambo hovu usishike na kukhalifu sharia Even without speaking Swahili, you can really get the cadence and rhythm of that poem. But now I want to hear what your rendering in English is. Um, Clarissa, maybe you could read the translation of those excerpts of the poem. Again, that was Hapo Zamani Zayana uh, by the father of Ustad Mao. Yes, by Ahmed Abdul Qadir. I'll start from the beginning. Once upon a time, when I was still a boy, when I had not yet even grown a beard, I heard these words. If a man chooses a good omen, mostly he gets what he wishes. We have seen and heard of much evidence. Even if a father is evil-minded, he takes care of his child. Every clear bit of advice he likes to pass on to his child. So here you hear the, the caring father who wants to kind of pass on the advice. And we'll jump to it. He jumped actually in the reading to another part. I will let you know the reason for this poem. I was in a shop with my friends, and then I heard a story. Bahasani told the story of Nasruddin. My heart longed to use this name. God made it happen the most knowledgeable, not even a month passed, before the wish was fulfilled. I married your mother. She became pregnant with you. I gave you your name, Nasruddin. Listen. Live up to this name together with all his deeds. Don't adopt evil manners that violate the Sharia. So Nasruddin is on the one hand now, um, on the one hand, widely recognized as a trickster figure. There are lots of, so to say, jokes about Nasruddin and Baghdad and um, Iraq and so on. But on the other hand, there's also the Islamic tradition of him being a very erudite um, scholar. And that's so to say his father was always dreaming of giving him this name because he thought that then his son might follow in the footsteps of Nasruddin. In the end, as you see from his actual name, Mahmoud, this never happened because then I think it's the mother who intervened, right? Anakara, who said, no, it, it's Mahmoud, basically, um, which she would prefer actually as the name, which, is a, which was a name in the family already. We talked a little bit before about how this is an example of the wasiya genre, which Ana Kiara, you described as spiritual guidance, often from parents to children. Um, and we also talked about how Ustad Mao himself is an imam, regularly delivers sermons, regularly offers spiritual advice and guidance in the community on Lamu. I wonder if you could talk about the importance of Islam in his life and maybe about the religious dimension to his poetry in general. Yeah, this is a great question that uh, would need hours of, of um, discussion. 
uh, and we would need him to to talk about that uh, by himself. But um, for sure, for the little uh, we have started knowing him, uh, we can certainly say that um, Islam is the compass of his life. And yes, these reflects his poetry uh, that is so full of guidance and love. Um, uh, exactly because we just mentioned and read from Hakuzamani Zadiana um, a few final lines that unfortunately we couldn't read for you. But uh, uh, in there, we found a, a metaphor of sea life, where uh, which is beautiful. And it's about the Prophet being compared to the captain, the Prophet Muhammad, um, of course, compared to the captain who guides uh, the board uh, that in turn is a metaphor of human life into the harbor. Mm. So, um, of course, along the, the path and the lessons and the teachings of the prophet uh, who guides his, his um, who guides human life to the harbor, somehow he feels also committed to do that towards his community. And, and on the other side, I think his religion also goes um, hand in hand with, uh, with knowledge, uh, with ma'rifa, uh, elimu, how we would say in Swahili. Um, he's a strong advocate of, of, of being a knowledgeable person, of reading, of knowledge. Um, his motto is indeed Soma Usemi. That means very much read before you may speak. Huh? And his madrasa teacher as well, Ustad Harit Swaleh, uh, he played a huge impact on his own education and, and thirst for knowledge. Um, for instance, uh, he always mentions uh, one of the eye-opening books for him uh, that was uh, by Sheikh Yusuf al-Karadawi, al-Nasu al-Haq, um, that um, explained to him controversial issues about Islam and law. And all this then comes back uh, in his poetry, um, where notions of uh, moralities and ethics are, are, um, are accessible to his people in a simpler language um, that may touch them emotionally as well as spiritually. Um, yeah, and as, as both an imam and poet, um, Ustad Mao is very much concerned with, uh, with ethical and moral questions, and his work often takes strong uh, and sometimes also unexpected stances, if you want. <laughs> yeah, I think probably that, that aspect is something that's quite interesting, because uh, well, it, what is an imam and what is Islam? That's a very difficult question because Islam is, of course, many things and also very dynamic. And then he tries to, um, in a sense, apply religion, of course, into by giving um, advice. But often he takes this very arm kind of um, stances that might seem even that even challenges his own community by, for instance, siding with the woman who falls pregnant outside of marriage, or um, kind of really making the society reflect about can we really just only blame the woman um, or taking so to say side with um, children so often the marginalized the downtrodden and that's not necessarily what you expect from an imam being a very moral or moralizing figure so he's somebody who who is very carefully in a sense weighing arguments and ideas and um, and then on the other hand he is also um um, a very, in a sense, um, a, a strong thinker as well in his own tradition, because as, as well, Islam also on the small island of Lamu is something that has been very dynamic. So there's a strong tradition 
of um, Sufism and there is Maulidi celebrations. And that's something that he, in a sense, grew into with his own family. So his grandfather and father were part of it. But then he, he became critical of it, like thinking, okay, is that all we need? Can we just engage in these rituals? Can we just venerate the saints and the so-called big men um, of the community? Should we not rather strive for, and that's his big topic, of course, education. And there he's very much influenced by reformist thinkers. And Akira just mentioned one, like um, which became very prominent in the 1970s, like the idea of how can we catch up with modern education? feeling like the need to catch up and, and really the fear of, of lagging behind. So if you see him um, as, well, being part of or Islam, being um, the huge part of his life, of course, also, in a sense, uh, forces him to, of course, always take a stance and see what makes sense for his community. What does he think also as a captain of his own community, what, what is relevant? And of course, there are many different and also opposing visions on the on the East African coast that would not necessarily agree with him or would even oppose his own his own ideas. One example of what you're both describing now, both the ethical and moral dimension of his poetry, as well as these sometimes unconventional stances that he takes to those ethical moral questions, is this poem, Don't Blame My Mother, which was inspired by a newspaper article and is written from the perspective of a baby who's been abandoned by its mother. But as the title suggests, Don't Blame My Mother, the baby does not wish for the blame to fall on its mom, but rather questions society at large. What can you tell us about that poem before we listen to Ustad Mao himself reading it in that index book's reading? Well, I think you, you summarized it very well already. He, he came across a newspaper article about a dog rescuing a baby who was abandoned in the forest in the Ngong Hills, which is in the vicinity of Nairobi, so not, not his neighborhood at all. And then, um, so, so what, on the one hand, of course, while well, the newspaper article praised the dog <laughs> as the savior of the, of the child, the poem has a bit of a different emphasis. It also, in a sense, puts an emphasis on the dog, but then also the, the, the baby very much questions the typical kind of um, view that was shared then also in the community on Lamu, like how can a mother abandon a child? I mean, how is that ever possible? Like putting all the blame on, on the woman and the poem in a sense really speaking, where's the baby speaking? And the major re, um, recurring chorus is how um, don't blame my mother. Like you see already the stance, like it's a society's fault if a mother is um, drawn to such an extreme as needing to abandon the baby. And there seems to be no other solution that can be found. That's very much the tenet of the poem. Let's listen to that in the original Swahili, and then I'll have you both translate it, please. Imenibidi kunena kabla wangu wakati. Sababu nimewaona mamangu humlaiti. Mamangu makosa hana. Sipweke amizohiti kosa hili ndaumati. Ndaumati hili kosa na ziongozi wanti. Kosa nda wanatiasa na mahakimu wakoti. Kosa nda wenye mapesa Nawasiyo na senti, kosa hili ndaumati. 
Mamangu si Mariamu, wa imrana binti. Mama ni mwanadamu, neishi hapa tiati. Na nyuteni mwafahamu, kuna zaifu wakati ushindwa kuidibi. Mama hakutenda pweke na labuda hakukiri, ali na wendani wake aloifanya jasiri, nipo mimi ni umbike, mamangu kumuwaziri, pasina yangu khiari. Hikiwa kuna lawama, lawama na zitangane, mukimlaumu mama na ebaba mumkane, ndipo hapo ya takoma ubaguzi musifanye, wanawake musifine. Mimi katu sikubali mamangu kumlaumu, na pweke kumkejeli huwa ni kumdhulumu. Kwa epweke ambuhili asilani halitimu, hilo nyute mafahamu. Kitendo ni chawawili, halipowa kapokea. Haitokuwa adili mama pweke kumwemea. Halihitagi dalili, wala huja kuzengea, ayuwa kula mmoja. Nino huwana utungu kiwasikia hunena. Umlaumu mamangu kwa kuwa mkosa sana. Mimi na wendani wangu hatupati hata ina misina au sibini. Menitupa wangu mama siko kuwa hanipendi. Ni baba memsukuma kisa kumwalika landi. Nae kwa kuchalawama za wenindimi na tundi menitupa yake kandi. Na amini anipenda mama hakunitukia. Nilipi lilomshinda kumzi kunizivia. Tokea siku ya kwanda duniani mimikuya ni ruhuma kunonea. Natamani, natamani wangu mama kumpata. Nimwambie shukurani ni mpe ya hasantani. Kwa kunilicha tumboni hata siku zikapita, ndia nami kafuata. Kumpijia saluti mamangu kwa wakewema. Kwa kuniwata niketi matumboni kwa salama. Na wala simulaiti kwa liyo fanya mama alitenda kwa lazima. Menitatia tambara, usudi kunilibiti. Nisipate la madhara, inkiniweka kabu mti, baridi ingenikera, nikakutwa ni maiti, alofanya sikatiti. Kabla ya kumaliza kufunga yangu kauli, walimwengu unauliza hazawa marayapili, Hakuna takaweza kuwa wa mama badali na shukuru wa fadhili. Wemawenu si ukani na wamumbu wa masuhuri. Umenitenda hisani, umenifanya mazuri. Wangaliko duniani, wadja wapenda ukheri, tamati hapa shaimu. Can you read your translation of that poem from the book? Yes. I have been compelled to speak prior to my time because I have seen you condemning my mother. My mother is not the one to blame. 
it is not their fault alone. It is society's fault. It is the fault of society and the leaders of the country. It's the fault of the politicians and the judges in the court. It's the fault of those who have money and those without a cent. It is society's fault. My mother is not Mariam, the daughter of Imran. My mother is a human being living here on earth. As all of you know, there are times of weakness in which we fail to control ourselves. My mother did not do it alone and probably not voluntarily. She had a partner who feigned adventurousness. That's how I came into being, putting shame on her against my own will. If there is someone to be blamed, this blame should be distributed equally. If you accuse the mother, the father also should be blamed. Only then can this be prevented. Don't be biased and place the blame on women alone. I do not agree if you blame my mother and ridiculize only her because this is an injustice. She could never have done this by herself. You all know that. This can only be done by two people, the one who received the offer and also accepted it. It's unfair to place the onus only on my mother. No evidence is necessary, nor need any proof be found. Everybody knows it. I feel so much bitterness if I hear people talking, blaming my mother as the only wrongdoer. My fellow sufferers and I, we are not even named only Sina or Sibina. My mother threw me away, but not because she had no love for me. It was the father who pushed her, putting the hangman noose around her neck. It was just from fear of being accused by scandal mongers and chatterbots that she threw me her treasure away. I believed she loved me. My mother did not hate me. What else would have prevented her from suffocating me right away? From the first day I came into the world, she felt compassion for me. I wish, I wish to find my mother so that I can thank her and show her my gratitude for keeping me in her warm until the time was due for me to find my way out. I salute my mother for her kindness, to let me stay safely in her womb, and I do not blame my mother for what she did. She was forced to do so. She wrapped me in a piece of cloth to protect me, so that I would not be harmed when she placed me on the bare ground. For if the cold had struck me, I would have been found dead. What she did was not trifling. Before I finish and conclude my speech, I ask you human beings, can I possibly be born a second time? There is no one to replace my mother. Still, I thank all my saviors. I cannot deny your kindness, nor that of the famous dog. You have done me a favor and you have done good to me. There are still people in the world who are altruistic. Here my poem ends. Thank you. In the world of translation, poetry must be one of the most difficult genres to work on, maybe alongside with things like jokes. What were some of the challenges that you faced in this particular case of translating Mao's work into English from the original Swahili? 
Yeah, well, that's a question that was also raised by the audience during our reading in the Netherlands uh, last May. Uh, translation uh, was and is and will ever be a huge challenge indeed. <laughs> Um, particularly and also because we were translating uh, the poems into a language that is not our mother tongue. And inevitably, there are uh, losses uh, while translating, for sure. Um, so inevitably, we couldn't stick to the rhyming system, for instance. And well, let alone the musicality of the Swahili of Swahili cluster words woven together, you can't render it into into English, uh, nor nor you could do in in German nor in Italian, I think. And yeah, this is also why we wanted so much to have Swahili, the Swahili original text included in the books and part of the editorial work. Um, somehow we hope that the reader, uh, even the one who is not versed in Swahili, may be curious and try to read for uh, herself, himself, the verses aloud. Um, we are sure that they will speak to, to them. Uh, poetry speaks to, to people having an open heart, after all. So even without grasping the entire meaning, they, they may understand our challenges and also, in a way, forgive us. <laughs> It's a bit like a music that you like uh, before understanding its lyrics. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit the history behind the struggle uh, about translating. I think Anna Clara put it very well. I mean, <laughs> poetry is, of course, everything gets lost in translation. I mean, the whole um, notion of, of the poetic where the sound and the meaning are so tightly linked. Um, so in Swahili, that's mostly there's a strict kind of meter as as well as a rhyme pattern that we didn't we didn't follow. On the other hand, his poetry, in comparison to other Swahili poetry, is very narrative. There is lots of I mean, probably seen that, heard it already. Um, there there are stories being told where one also feels like yeah, there's really something one uh, one can kind of recreate in <laughs> in English. Um, let me just add one aspect, which of course we also struggle with, and these are of course cultural references. Like for instance, before I explained the, the meanings, what, what people hear when they hear Nasruddin. So sometimes we added some explanation, but we also didn't want to kind of have an excessive kind of um, apparatus of, of explanations. Or for instance, now with the poem we just read, um, children who have no names, they get these names Sina or Sibina, which literally actually means I don't have meaning any name, yeah. So, but that's something. If we had translated this literally into English, so they called me I don't have, that doesn't make any sense. So, in in some cases, of course, then we left also the Swahili expressions, and that, of course, then it, that's something to discover as well. There are some kind kind of, of course, cultural practices that the reader then can also um, explore or probably. As Anna Clara put it, much better get get more curious about actually because this is definitely not not an anthropological study what we are suggesting here. The last poem I want to play is Kipande Chaini, which translates literally as "piece of my liver." We started this conversation or early on listening to a poem by Ustad Mao's father, and this poem similarly acts as a kind of ode to a child. In this case, Ustad's own daughter Azra. And the poem deals with kind of the pain of being away from his daughter during part of her childhood when she lived with her grandmother. Before we listen, could you contextualize this poem a bit? Let us know what we need to understand before listening. 
Well, the poem uh, depicts a deep relationship uh, between a father and his daughter. Um, um, it's um, it's it's an act of pure love uh, in a way um, because it offers a very tender portrayal of Stad Mao as a gentle and sweet father. So somehow this poem, yes, indeed belongs to uh, those group of poems that uh, we may consider more autobiographical ones. And uh, particularly this one is uh, indeed dedicated to his daughter, Asra, um, calling her a piece of my liver um, that could be rendered as um, apple of my eye in English, maybe. Um, and it's dedicated to her because uh, shortly after she was, I mean, shortly after she was born, she was um, raised by her grandmother and, and aunt um, on Father Island. So he could not spend enough time with her. And of course, this made him sad because he wished uh, he could have played uh, with her and uh, having her closer uh, uh, physically and to his heart as well. So... Um, yeah, and uh, it's a poem that um, yeah also shows indeed um, uh, it it could be read also as as if you want as a love letter from a father to a daughter that is if you want also uh, practice quite unusual in uh, current societies um, so we were happy to include it because um, yeah I think it shows another uh, another phase of Ustad Mao as as, uh, as such a caring uh, father and human being yeah probably just to to add on it the reason why they couldn't spend um, enough time with each other or the reason why Asra was raised elsewhere is because he allowed her mother to study so um, Asra's mother went to the university, to Moy University in Eldoret um, to study, which I think is a good kind of example as well of him promoting uh, women. And Asra herself now, um, herself is a medical doctor and um, just finishing her studies in, in Egypt at the, at the moment, both um, with a training both in, um, in medicine as well as psychiatry. And he is very proud of her as well. So just imagine somebody who attended, he himself attended primary school in his uh, late 50s again to, to properly learn English uh, because he, um, well, he definitely has a big education, but he felt like he still also wants to go through the formal education and more or less, um, not at the same time, but earlier he allowed his first his wife and then his daughter actually to, to um, study at universities, which, and he's very proud of that as well. Yeah, and just to add, indeed, Asra is the firstborn from his second um, uh, wife. So Asra is the first, Hanan the second, and the Buddhist the third. And um, yeah, shall we read it? Mm -hmm. Yes. So let's listen to Ustad Mao reading Kipande Chaini, and then we'll hear the translation right afterwards. Azira Na hapa na na upungua tewengo shida zote kwa wasina 
hasa tuwapoonena mimi na wewe pamoja sauti yako laini na maneno nusu nusu usikiza kwa makini kila mara kikumusu kukosa languini ni kama kutiwa kisu ni wewe nimekukusu kwenye ndozo wote pia kiwa nawe kiwa nawe ni anata kuwa nawe ni anata ni pombao kubwa sana na ni raha isiyokuisa kuwa nawe wangu mwana starehe nimekosa marafiki wa kunena vikimno nimeona rafula kunondoki kunikimbia mwanangu nikikulisha ziazi mayai nyama na niwapo na kumwesha soda matama matama mwanangu unikumbusha mke wangu wako mama hawaza mengi ya nyuma siku zilotangulia mwana ukija ukija dukani kumuuliza amita ukiingia hata ndani alipo kumfuata hata naye maskini mayondi yamempata hana tena wa kumwita na maneno kumwambia mwanangu sineni sana kanena yasoneneka kipenda mola robana mwanangu utosumbuka na siku ya kukutana na tumai itafika siku hiyo tukushika mno kukumbatia hiyo ndilako azra litengenye na wengine balite sasa yao unahamu wa kuone muhudati hasa hao kukutaya ukezene na bibio ni muene ulizie mazoea kauli yangu tamati hapa nafunga shairi na kuombea kwa dhati na dua tazikariri mungu akupe bahati kama mwezi unawili uwe na moyo wa ari wa umma kutumikia Could you guys please read your translation of that poem? Azra, your traveling has made me so sad. If I could choose my daughter, you would not depart. Because you've captivated me and I don't want to be far from you. I always recall the time I used to spend with my daughter. When I'm with you, my daughter, I also turn into a child. I forget the word for the joy I feel. Worries decrease and I forget all my problems particularly when we talk to each other you and me together your soft voice and half spoken words when i listen to you carefully always kissing you to miss you my heart it feels like a knife stabbing me i wrote this poem for you from among all your siblings to be with you is an entertainment it is a great delight it is an endless happiness to be with you my daughter I have lost interest in all pleasures and have no friends to talk to. I'm full of agony because of your sudden departure. My daughter, when I feed you potatoes, eggs and meat, and when I give you small sips of soda to drink, my daughter, you remind me of my wife, your mother. I've been thinking a lot about our past in former times before you. My daughter, when you come to the bakery, 
you look for Amida. Whenever you would come in, you would go to where he was. Even he is now sad, taken by grief. He has nobody to call him nor speak to him. My daughter, let me not talk too much, lest I say words that should not be uttered. God willing, my daughter, you will not suffer, and I hope the day for us to meet will, will come soon. On that day, I will hold you tight and embrace you. When you leave, you also make others sad. Balide longs to see you immediately. Muhadati doesn't fail to mention you constantly. I have seen your grandmother. She has grown used to your presence. My words have reached their end. I'm concluding the poem here. I'm praying for you with all my heart, and I recite these prayers. May God grant you good luck so that you shine like the moon and that your heart is determined to serve the community. When I first heard the poem at Index Books, I found it to be very moving, both the translation and hearing Ustad Mao read it in the original Swahili. Maybe that's in part because I am a new father myself. Um, but I think it's not only that, Anna Chiara, when I recall, if you don't mind me saying, you were also quite emotional at the Index Books reading during that poem. So I think everyone in the room found it quite moving. What do you think it is that's so affecting about that piece in particular? Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know why it happened and I, I got so um, emotional, uh, but uh, I, it's true that, um, that it speaks to lots of people and probably, um, as, a, as I said before, I, I really think that there is something tender uh, in the way he waves words together in this poetry. Um, and you can really see before your eyes images of a father playing with a daughter that is also a kind of image um, uh, somehow hardly hardly promoted, hardly described, hardly existing any longer. Um, of course, then every story is, is personal, so I can't I can speak on behalf of all the daughters uh, in the world. But I, I remember a colleague uh, from the African Studies Center, uh, Azeb Amha, um, Ethiopian by origins, who also commented on how much she loved that poem uh, because reminded of her childhood spent with her loving father and how very often even the figure of a father is some uh, of the African father is sometimes portrayed um, in a negative way, whereas in fact they are way tender than, than mothers. So I don't know, I leave it for father thought, but um, I'm happy to see that uh, that poetry can still make us um, emotional. It's it's a good sign. <laughs> Absolutely. That seems like a good place to start wrapping up. I want to remind all the listeners that the book that we've been talking about in this fragile world contains a lot more poetry and a lot more contextual information. So I recommend that listeners seek it out, particularly because this is a title from Brill that's been released in open access. So it is free to access, and I encourage listeners to do that. Before we end the interview, could you offer any other recommendations for those interested reading further in, say, African poetry or whatever else you might like to recommend if we want to go further down this road? Oh, well, that's uh, that's also a great question. And uh, and uh, where should we start and when uh, and where should we end? Uh, we 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 can give some tips or or uh, or some uh, yeah wise pills. 
Um, I, the first thing I have in mind now you asking us this question is um, let's read more Somali poetry by all means, uh, particularly Somali law poetry, uh, uh, masterpieces that everybody should uh, have tried to read at least once uh, in, in, in life. So uh, to begin with, but I, I could also think of Yoruba praise poetry uh, that we also teach in our, in our classes of African literature. Yeah, if I may just add on that, I mean, there is so much. Um, on the one hand, if it comes to the so-called traditional genres, um, I also wouldn't know where to, where to stop and where to start. And particularly because you also get to know quite a bit about um, yeah, what some, some people would still call the worldview of others. So what is praise poetry? What, 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 is, what is praising, basically? How, how much is it part of a, of a society? I think also... Um, well, Zulu praise poetry, but also there are lots of interesting Rwandan poetry um, as well to um, to be explored. Well, basically, I think well, all African society, as, as so to say, if we look globally, all societies have traditions of poetry, and the African continent is particularly rich in um, in praising traditions, and um, which I think still need to be explored on a on a broader level, but also. Uh, but also the, the epic poetry, like um, the Sunjata of Mali is the most well-known uh, epic poem, probably, which needs to be read and reread. I think it deserves the same status, like something like the Gilgamesh or like the big kind of world literature. But, but one could add many more examples. The problem is, and I think probably there we are more to blame, we have to publish more books, they're not so easily accessible. So the Sunjata has some more popular kind of editions as well, but other kind of epic traditions, including those from the Swahili coast, um, they, they can be found more in academic, actually, um, journals or books than, um, than in, in the world poetry series. But, but we are working on it. Hopefully, it's going to be more easily accessible. And I can also recommend what I normally also include into my teaching, uh, really, because there is lots of musicality in poetry as well globally. It's just in the last 200 years, we put so much emphasis on writing. But now, of course, with the social media, the audio aspect is back and the oral aspect. It's lots of spoken word poetry. Also from the African continent, um, there are great open um, stages in all major African cities. And a lot of it is also can just be found on YouTube as well. And they're really excellent um, poets, including as well, if we take that uh, a broader perspective, also the hip hop traditions from Senegal is a big hip hop nation, South Africa as well. There's a lot actually that, that can be explored there, and which also deserves more um, translation as well. I want to thank you both so much for coming on today to explain your new work to me and also to introduce me to this rich tradition of poetry and literature in Africa and particularly in Kenya in the case of your new book. Again, that book is In This Fragile World. Thank you, Anna Chiara and Clarissa, very much for joining me. Thank you. That was Clarissa Firka and Anna Chiara Raya. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally-oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. 
We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's iias.asia. See you next time.